0: Well good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, can I ask you to open with me to John's gospel and to chapter six? Uh, John's Gospel in chapter six. We were here last week looking at that familiar miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then we're going to pick up again this morning uh, in verse 22 of John six, and read through then to verse 40 together. So John's Gospel, uh, beginning to read at chapter 6 and verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you eat your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes. But for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal then they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent so they said to him then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would feed us,
1: would you plant that hunger within us, that we might hear your word, and might we be richly blessed as we hear you speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, you will know that we were thinking about vision. We were thinking about putting on lenses that helped us to understand that the part of John's gospel that we were in, and and the lenses that we chose to put on were the lenses of Exodus, and they really helped us to understand what was being said in, in John's gospel. It gave us vision. It gave us clarity with what was really going on. And today, I want us to continue to kind of go along the lines of sight. Uh, But today, I want us to to see that seeing is not always believing. That's really the the big thrust of today. Seeing is not always believing, but we need our eyes unveiled to truly see in order to believe. Let's have a, a look at the passage together, and hopefully that will become clear. If, uh, if you remember back uh, to what happened last week, remember that really sets the context of, of where, we're, where we are today in John's gospel. Jesus has just fed the great multitude, hasn't he? Uh, the 5,000 or perhaps the 20,000. And then the, the crowd, they were going to take Jesus by force, weren't they? That's what their plan was. They were going to take him and make him king. And yet what happens? Jesus just takes himself away up into the mountain. And evening came and his disciples got into the boat. They, they cross over the lake. And while they're crossing, they get caught in this great big storm. And yet what was most fearful of all wasn't the storm, but was that they met Jesus walking on the water. Jesus showed his power and his authority over creation. And even if you think with those lenses of the Exodus story, we said that Jesus was proving himself to be the true and better Moses. Who didn't even require the sea to be parted in order to make his way through? Now, the crowd—they weren't there for that miracle. They didn't see Jesus walking on water. That was the disciples got to see that. They got the witness, it, but not the crowd. And so, in a sense, we know more than the crowd at this point. We know more. What they know is that, well, there was one boat, and one boat left that side of the lake. Jesus' disciples were on the boat, but Jesus was not on the boat. There was one boat that made its way across, but now Jesus is not there. And so they're intrigued, they're confused, and they're wondering how this has come to be. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? There's a great sense of intrigue, isn't there? You know, if you were there, you'd probably had something similar. You just can't figure it out. There was one boat. Jesus was not on the one boat. And yet here he is, and he is now at the other side of the sea. Well, how did he do it? It's a question we'd all kind of ask, isn't it? If, if we were there, we'd, we'd be asking that as the obvious question. But I want you to look at Jesus' response. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you eat your fill of the loaves. wonder, did you notice that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question? Did you spot that? Their question was with regards to how he got from there to here uh, with the sea in between and the fact that he didn't come in a boat. And in his answer, well, he doesn't refer to it at all. (laughs) Maybe it's a good reminder to us that just because someone asks us a question, we don't necessarily have to answer. But it seems strange to us, doesn't it? Why would Jesus not tell him what happened? I mean, surely we might think to ourselves, well, this is Jesus' opportunity to talk about how he walked on water, a miracle that I'm sure this crowd would have loved to have, to have heard all about. And yet, Jesus chooses not to say that. And look at what he does say. He starts off by saying, truly, truly. In other words, what I'm about to say is really important. He says, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you eat your fill of the loaves. Now, what does Jesus mean here? What's he, what's he talking about? Well, did they see the sign? Did they see the sign? Yes, they did see the sign. The crowd were there. Uh, whenever we're talking about sign, we're talking about the miracle. He fed the 5,000, the great multitude. Did they see it with their eyes? Well, yes, they did. They were there. They witnessed it. They saw what Jesus did and how he fed the great crowd. And now here they are, and they're following Jesus because they want to see more. So in one sense, yes, they did see. But what Jesus is highlighting is the fact that, yes, they had saw with their eyes, but they hadn't saw what Jesus was really teaching them. They hadn't really picked up on the point of the miracle. It was a sign that was supposed to point them toward something, and yet they had missed that completely. As one writer, puts it, he says, you had seen my power, but you had missed my point. You'd seen my power, but you'd missed my point. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to them here. They saw with their eyes, yes, but seeing didn't lead them to believe in Jesus. The point of the miracle. So seeing doesn't necessarily mean believing. Look with me at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, Jesus says to the crowd, look, you have just fixed your thoughts on, on purely the here and now. You simply want physical, uh, material things that you can touch and that satisfy all of your desires. You want food for your belly. And perhaps in our entertainment-focused society, we might add and a license for your telly. That's the kind of things that get you excited, you know? food for your belly, a license for your telly, all those kind of things. But they had missed their greatest need. What was their greatest need? Their greatest need was the need of their soul. That's what they were supposed to think about whenever they had been fed as part of that great big multitude. But they had failed to see. Now maybe we could just pause for a second here. Here. Because what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is rebuking the crowd for this purely materialistic focus. And I wonder what Jesus might be saying to us this morning. I wonder what he might be saying to us this morning. Is it that our lives are given over to work that is purely for food that perishes? Or would he see that our lives, our lives that are lived out, and shaped by the fact that we know that this life is not all there is. We know that there's eternal life to come. And so we shape out our, our, our lives and our diaries and our, and our wallets. It, it all tells the story that we know this life is not all there is. Do we seek to store up treasure in heaven? Or is all of our lives lived out as if this is where we find all of our treasure? Perhaps that's one to think about throughout the week, isn't it? But notice that in his response, in verse 27, Jesus helps them to see that what they need is not just physical bread, but actually a person. This food that they need it comes from the Son of Man, a person. And then how does that uh, verse finish? For on him God has set his seal. Again, it's a person. Jesus is pointing them again to a person. Well, for those who are listening they still don't really understand what Jesus is talking about at this stage. And look at their response. Seems that they heard him say the word work and they thought work, great, work. We'll pick up on that. Uh, What must we do to be doing the works uh, of God? In other words, what must we do in order to do the works that God requires of us? So it's a typical works-based answer, isn't it? What must we do? What must I do to be right with God? And look at the wonderful response that Jesus gives. Because again, he points them back to the person. He points them back to the person, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent, whom he has sent. So the work isn't actually something that you can do at all, is it? But rather it is believing in the, the one who does it all for you. You can never do the work required to be right with God. Isn't that part of the gospel story? For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus is making it clear that in order to have eternal life, it's not down to any of the works that you have done or any works that you will do or any works that you are doing at the moment. No, works will not make you right with God. But rather it is through faith, through belief in the one whom God has sent. I wonder do you see this morning? What wonder do you see... Do you see that it is the person of Jesus Christ that you need to put your hope in today? It is a person that you must trust in, not in any works that you have done or will do or are doing. You must put your trust in the person of Jesus. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread From heaven to eat. I wonder if uh, you have this experience. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and you just find yourself smiling. You find yourself giggling along. And and the reason you do that is because it's funny. (laughs) What you read is actually funny. Dale Ralph Davis, uh, for me, he's one of the most helpful Bible commentators of of our uh, day. And he says that often when there is humor in the Bible, and I think there really is humor in the Bible, there's something along that's happening at the very same time that is is not funny. There's humor, and then there's something alongside it that is not funny. So if we keep with the Exodus story, linking back to, to last week, think of the Exodus story for a moment. Um, Pharaoh ki- uh, orders that all of the, the young Israelite boys are to be killed. All of the baby Israelites are, are, uh, boys are to be killed. Uh, and what does Moses' mom do? Well, she takes Moses and because she knows he's going to be killed, she tries to rescue him. She puts him in a basket, okay, and she puts him in the, in the river. And then, then the basket floats off with this baby boy, Moses, in the basket. Boys and girls, you might know this part of the story. Who is it that actually picks up the basket? Who is it? It's Pharaoh's daughter, isn't it? Pharaoh's daughter, and so we we smile as we think about this. Pharaoh's daughter picks up this baby. She saves and rescues this baby. She actually brings up this baby in Pharaoh's own house. I mean, we smile as we think about that, don't we? And then then you read on the story of what happens. Who does she employ in order to bring up Moses? Well, Moses' own mother. And as you read the story, you can't help but smile and think, wow, this is is funny in how it works out. And yet what's happening at the very same time. Lots of other little boys are being killed, aren't they? So there's humor, and yet there's something that's not funny that kind of goes alongside it. As we look at this story, and we see what the people say, they say to Jesus, well, what signs do you do that we might see and might believe you? Well, it's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you have, to, you have to smile because what's Jesus just done? He's just fed a whole great multitude of people using one little boy's lunch. Fed a great multitude. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, could you do any signs that might prove who you are? And then they even give a suggestion. They think back to the story of what happened in Exodus and how Moses fed the people Uh, in the wilderness, what did he do? He he gave them them bread to eat. And so that's the example that they use. And you're thinking, "This this is ridiculous. What has Jesus just done? It's funny, isn't it? It's hard not to smile. And yet, there is something deeply tragic, isn't it? Because the reality is that if they do not come to truly see who Jesus is, if they don't see the point of his miracles they don't see that he is the only one to whom they can come to have eternal life. If they do not believe in his name, well then they will spend eternity experiencing the judgment of God. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, "'but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. "'For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven "'and gives life to the world.'" See, the people were still focused on the present, weren't they? That was their focus. They were focused on the present. They wanted more signs. Uh, they wanted presumably more bread for their belly because maybe they were starting to feel hungry again. And even as they looked back at how their fathers had been provided for in the wilderness, their focus seemed somewhat misplaced because rather than seeing that it was God's provision, they seemed to be focused more on Moses. And so Jesus reminds them, it wasn't actually Moses who fed you. No, it was actually the Father. It was the Father, the one who gives true bread from heaven. You see, I think what Jesus wants them to see is that as they look back at God's provision in the wilderness, that in itself, although sustaining the people for a time in the wilderness, was also a sign. It was a sign to point them forward, a sign to point them forward, and also a sign to point them to their spiritual need. The fact that they had a spiritual desire that needed satisfied, pointing them to someone who would give them what is essential to life itself. And this bread from heaven, where does it come from? God. This bread comes down from heaven. This bread is a person. Verse 34 They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I want you to think about their response. Because it sounds somewhat like a response that we've already came across in John's gospel. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus offers her, offers her living water, and she, what does she say? Sir, give me this water. I want this water. See that back in, in chapter four. And at that point, she still hadn't really grasped what was going on. And the crowd here still haven't really grasped what Jesus is saying. They still don't have eyes to see. And so we could get to this point in the text, and after such great crowds have seen and yet not believed, we might wonder to ourselves, will anyone believe? Lots of people seem to see, but they, they do not seem to believe. Will anyone ever get this gift of eternal life that's an offer? Up until this point, we've had lots of seeing, but not much believing. But the last verses that we're going to focus on today, they They help us because they remind us of something really important. They remind us how this salvation works, of how we actually become children of God. It reminds us that God is the one who grants us the sight to truly see and to believe. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here Jesus shares a great, a great call to come uh, to come and believe, doesn't he? Notice uh, it's no longer talking about the third person. It's no longer um, saying that he who came from heaven, but now Jesus is, is saying, I am the bread of life. It's moved to the first person, hasn't he? And this is the first of his famous I am sayings in, in John's gospel. And again, we mentioned Last week about how the I am sayings really echo what took place back in Exodus as God reveals himself as the great I am. And Jesus is saying, I am, I am, and he's the bread of life. He has given them bread, the food that was essential to their living. And so Jesus is really saying, I am the one who can satisfy your spiritual hunger. That is what I do. I can satisfy your spiritual hunger. And so, with this statement, there is a sense of invitation, isn't there? Whoever believes will have their hunger satisfied. Whoever believes will have their thirst quenched. Verse 36 But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. Seeing is not necessarily believing. Seeing is not necessarily believing. Do you you spot the the focus on belief here? It's it's not enough to have eyes to see that Jesus has great power. It's not enough to to recognize that he's the great prophet or the Messiah. The crowd had done that last time. It's not enough to even just recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. You must put your belief in him. You must put your trust in him. You must put your faith in him. Look at verse 37. How does this come about? Well, here again, we're going to see the sovereignty of God. Here we see God's initiative and in salvation because God is the one who, who brings our hearts from spiritual death to life. The spirit brings life to dead hearts. And we, we, we thought about that back in chapter three, didn't we? Thinking about rebirth. How does that happen? God does it. God does it. And in order to follow Jesus, in order to have eyes to truly see, you must be born again that's what must happen. It's something that must happen to you. It must happen to you. Remember that famous text that uh, often maybe we see on a, a tree or, or the side of a, a lorry. You must be born again is not a command, but it is the answer to a question. It's not a command. You must be born again. It's the answer to a question. It is something that must happen to you. Something that must happen to you. And again, that really matches up with what we're being taught here in Verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is what Jesus says. And, and look at those, those words. There is great certainty in what Jesus says here, isn't there? All that the Father gives will come. It's not some. It's not most of. No, it's all that the Father gives will come. Really clear. All that the Father gives will come. No question. Oh, how can Jesus say that? Well, perhaps you know that we as a church, a Presbyterian church, we're part of a Reformed tradition. And this is one of the areas that, in what we believe, is different than some of the other churches. And it's really important because really it's a question of whether God brings us to full spiritual life or, or is it like a bridge where God brings us halfway across a great chasm and we have to jump the rest? Does God save us completely, or is there something that we do in our salvation? Do we bring something to the table apart from our sin, or is it something that God does? And in the Reformed tradition, uh, what uh, we confess as, as a church here is that it is entirely a work of God. Salvation is entirely a work of God. He brings us the whole way over that great big chasm, if we uh, keep thinking about that illustration. Ephesians makes it really clear for us. It says that we were dead in our sins before we become Christians. And a dead man can't bring anything to his resurrection. Once you're dead, there's there's no possibility of you cooperating. You you rely on someone else to bring you to life. It's totally a work of God. And that's why Jesus can say this. That's why he can say, all, all. it's not some who the Father will give. It's not, it's not that some will say, well, okay, God has brought me halfway, but I'm refusing to go the rest of the way. No, all that, all that God the Father gives will come. That's why Jesus can say this. Because it's a work of grace in which he opens up their eyes. And the grace is irresistible because once they see, well, then they are drawn to respond to Jesus. They are drawn to believe and receive. This desire to follow after Jesus will never come about without God saving and rescuing and bringing him to spiritual life. And again, I want you to notice that the language is the language of gift. I wanted you to spot that. All that the Father gives me This is the language of gift, isn't it? You might remember back to uh, the prologue, uh, the first 18 verses of of John's gospel. Some of you have learned that off as part of your growth group, which is brilliant, okay? I could get you up, and maybe you could recite it here at the front, but maybe picking you out at the front of the church might be be a bit much, okay? So we'll not do that. But if you go back to the prologue uh, in verse 12, listen to, to these words, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave... The right to become children of God. This is how you become a child of God. It is a gift of God the Father. Being born again is a gift of God. One where he gifts you faith so that you believe and receive Jesus. One where he opens the blind eyes, the eyes that couldn't see, and then you see, and you say, ah, now I believe. Now I am trusting in Jesus. This is a doctrine, it's a doctrine called the doctrine of election, and it's supposed to lead us to glorify God. That's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to lead us to glorify God and think, how wonderful that this God would choose to rescue and save. It's to lead us to glorify God. But look at the second part of verse 37, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, if you come to Jesus, he will not reject you. Now, we need to see that you can't preach one half of this verse without the other. They come as one verse. Some people try to deny the, the doctrine of election, that God chooses to see of some. And they take the second part of this verse as kind of their, their proof text and, and say, well, look, doesn't it say if anyone comes, Jesus won't turn them away? And, and yes, it does say that, doesn't it? It does say that. But it's connected to the first half. The only reason they're going to come is if God chooses to give them to his son. God is at work. That's why they come. But nor is the message of John's gospel um, one where we cannot invite people to follow Jesus because we don't know who is part of God's elect people. No, quite the opposite. We share and we offer the gospel and only those who have been given by the Father will truly come to Jesus only those who have been reborn by the Spirit will ever choose to truly follow after Jesus and believe in Him. Why do they do that? Because their eyes have been opened and they really do see. And once you really do see, well, then it actually does lead to belief. It actually does lead to belief. But notice that there's an act of coming. Well, look at that. There's an act of coming. It's not just that the individual doesn't respond. No, they they do need to come to Jesus or to use the, the, the language of verse 40, they need to look in the sun. Do you see that? There's this active response that takes place and God's sovereignty and election doesn't take away from that, okay? It doesn't undermine that there needs to be an active response from the individual. All that the father gives will come. Who comes? Only those that the father gives. How do we know them? will they come? And so we need to see both halves of verse 37 and recognize that they're never divorced from each other, but they're always both halves true. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I want you to spot the effectiveness of the work of Jesus. He will not lose any that are given to him, none. That's so encouraging, isn't it? So encouraging that Jesus' work is completely effective he saves all of God's people. That's, that's what Jesus will do. All of God's people. Now Notice it's not all people. So it's not that all men and all women will be saved as if no one will not be in the new creation. But rather, what Jesus does is he saves all of God's people. The people the Father has given to him. And he doesn't lose any that are given to him. Do you spot that? He loses None. He loses none. It's another doctrine. Maybe you can spot it. It's really thinking about definite atonement. Really saying that what Christ achieved on the cross really did save a particular people, a definite people. And this definite people are those who will look on the Son and believe. And only they will have eternal life. I wonder as you think about that language of look on Him, can you think of a story back in Numbers where God's people had to look on something. What did they have to look on? Well, they had to look at the, the snake in the pool, didn't they? And if they looked upon the snake, what would happen? They would be saved. So the people could think back, as Jesus says this, to what happened. But also they would think forward. Well, we think forward, don't we? As to what happens as Jesus is lifted up on the cross. And it is only if we'll look to Jesus, believing, putting our trust in him, that we will have salvation, that we will be saved from sin. And look at how these verses end. I will raise him up on the last day. You see, this eternal life that we keep talking about isn't just a a figment of our imagination, something that's just nice to to hold on to, as if there's, uh, you know, as if, well, maybe it might happen. No, it's sure to happen, because Jesus talks about it, doesn't he? Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. This eternal life, Really will come to pass. Because the last day is coming. Do you spot that? There is a last day and it's coming. Life as we know it is all heading in the one direction. And the one direction that it's heading is the day, the last day. The day when Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. And so today, let me ask you a question. And it's a really important question. The question is this Are you looking to the sun? Are you looking to the sun? Are you believing? Are you receiving? Have you come to Jesus? Have you, have you had your eyes opened where you can see that Jesus is the Son of God and you are actively coming, saying, yes, I am putting my trust in him. I'm putting my trust in him. Perhaps you're here today and up until this point, this has not been your story. Up until this point, you have been focusing and trying to satisfy that hunger within with all of the different things that you could get your hands on, all of the material goods, all of the physical pleasure, you've been reaching out and grabbing them, and, and you have perhaps perhaps you've grabbed a lot, and yet you know that you're still hungry, you still haven't no known satisfaction, there's still that deep craving within, and you say, I need something. I need something that's gonna satisfy you. Well, if that's you today, well then hear these words from Jesus, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want you to hear the invitation this morning to come, to come to Jesus and he can satisfy that aching in your soul. He's the only one that can quench that thirst. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that often, like the crowds, we spend our time focusing on the here and now. We try to satisfy all of our desires, material, physical, And yet, without coming to Jesus, we will never truly be satisfied. Lord, I pray that you would open each of our eyes. Open each of our eyes to see that Jesus is the Son of God and that it is only through him, believing and receiving him, and what he has done for us on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection, that we might know eternal life, that we might have that hunger satisfied, that thirst quenched. And so I pray for each of us, we would leave trusting in Jesus,
0: looking to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.